As we continue our series in the book of Revelation, uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 5 today. Um, And so I'm going to read our scripture and then say a word of prayer. Revelation 5, beginning in verse 1, says this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is God's word. Will you please pray with me? Father God, we praise you for this word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. And please work in us by your spirit now. Open our eyes, ears, and hearts to receive your word. May we obey your word, conform our lives to your will. And may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Because you are our rock and our redeemer. 
We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So, I want to begin by asking a question. What are you worth? If, if someone asked you that question and they were serious about it, how would you respond? The, the most obvious answer in our day and age would be to respond with a number, something on your bake statement, your net worth. Some of us might go a different direction. We might talk about our family, our friends, the people in our lives who are closest to us, where our value comes from from the people among us. Some of us might look at, at our achievements, at our greatest successes, at the things that we've done in life that, that, that show something, that mean something about us. Some of us uh, might just uh, throw other things that we own, our homes, our cars, some, some prized possession. That question, what are you worth, has so many different answers and so many different ways of being interpreted. But, but really, I, I, I start there because that, that question is fundamental to the beginning of this passage. It's not quite the same question, but it's pretty darn close. The question for us is, is what are we worth? But, but the question at the beginning of this passage, in verse 2, this angel stands up and says, who is worthy? Basically, is anyone worth enough? Does anyone have enough value? Is anybody out there, do you have what it takes to, to, to be the person to open the scroll that's in the Father's right hand? It's like the, the angel is asking anybody out there if they have what it takes to come up, to step up to the plate. And, and the whole universe is canvassed. A pole is taken of all creation. And it's almost like you could take the, the whole of, the, of, of human life, all of our riches and wealth, all of our virtue and, and nobility, everything good about us, put it on the cosmic scale. And what does it say? It says no one was worthy. At the end of the day, all of us being on that cosmic scale, all of humanity is found wanting. No one is worthy to open the scroll. We are not worthy. No matter what our worth is, no matter what we might think we're worth or others think we're worth, we're not worth enough, this passage says. But there's someone who is. There's someone who is worth enough. There's someone who is worthy. And that person deserves worship. In fact, the word worship is rooted in the word worth. It's worth-ship that became worship. And, and, and everyone in all of creation gives worth-ship to the one who is worthy, to Jesus Christ, the, the Lion of Judah, who is the Lamb. And as we look into this passage together, we're going to see just how worthy he is as the Lion, the King, and as the Lamb who laid down his life for us. Now, I, I want you to, to take a moment and, and just imagine a scenario with me. 
Just imagine that there was a global pandemic out there. Imagine that, that, that we were all in danger, our health was in danger. And, and imagine with me, it's fantasy I know, but imagine that the person running the show, fighting the disease at the top of the, the American government, maybe wasn't the most trustworthy individual. And in fact, often had, had spats and arguments and fights publicly with other civic leaders, leaders in states, local and even federal governments. Imagine that, that you know, the fight's kind of going in fits and starts. People are, are, are worried, they're scared, they're afraid. But, but imagine that you're in the government somehow and, and, and you get wind of this, this secret plan to fight the plague. That, that somewhere in the bowels of the CDC, there, there is behind a glass case that says break in, in case of emergency only, an envelope containing a secret plan that if implemented by the president and, and everyone in the executive branch, if, it's, if this secret plan to fight the plague is implemented, all of a sudden everything will turn, the tide will turn, millions of lives potentially are going to be saved. But you learn as you hear about the secret plan to fight the plague and you begin to get excited like, yes, this could, this could, this could really turn the tide and we could all be, be delivered from this pandemic. All theoretical, of course. As you learn, that about this plan, you also learn that there's a, a, a catch. That in order for uh, the, the, the leader of the country to implement the, the secret plan to fight the plague, the framers of the plan said that that person had to have, absolutely, without a doubt, had to have an 80% approval rating from the American public. And you hear that and your heart sinks. Because it just so happens that the person leading the country, his approval rating is always somewhere around 40%, half of what it takes to, to get the plan in place. And, and so you gather with a, a team of other people in the government because you're all, you're all trying to figure out how can we get this plan out there? We've discovered the plan, let's get it out there. Let's break the glass and open it up. And the best minds in the country come together and they're trying to come up with a way to implement this plan. And the best idea that anybody has is to find a, 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 a necromancer and, and raise George Washington or Abraham Lincoln from the dead in order to lead the country through the secret plan to fight the plague. That's the best idea anybody can come up with. Some kind of hocus pocus mac, mac, black magic mumbo jumbo. And as you hear that, and you realize the implications that the secret plan can't be implemented because black magic doesn't really exist. And as you think about the potentially thousands of lives that could be saved, the millions of jobs that, that could be put back into the marketplace, as you th think about all the implications, all the mourning and sorrow that could be avoided, but that won't be because the plan can't go into place. How do you respond? You might respond like John did in verse four, where he says he began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open it. You might weep and lament and mourn because life will not go back to normal anytime soon. You will be stuck at home, sheltering in place. And many people will suffer as a result. 
If you can imagine that scenario, then you can imagine just a tiny fraction of what John was experiencing in this passage. Because the, the, the scroll in the right hand of the Father, the one sitting on the throne, the throne of all the universe in heaven, that scroll isn't a secret plan to fight the plague. No, that, that, that scroll is far greater. That scroll is the, the plan of God himself to redeem all things. It's the plan of God himself that he began to formulate before the foundation of the world. That, that once it's open, once the seals are opened and the plan has begun to, to, to be enacted, then all of a sudden suffering will begin to go away. That the tears will cease to exist. That there will be no more death, no sickness, no pain. As soon as those seals are open, then, then real hope, real life is a possibility for you, for your family, for your friends, for everyone in all of creation. Just imagine that, that you knew where the cure to suffering was. Imagine you had a map at the end of which was the key to happiness for all people, world peace, perfect universal harmony. Imagine that you knew where the elixir of life existed. And as you go to get those things, to alleviate the pain and the suffering, to eliminate the sin and the death that's characterized all of creation. You go to get them and they're just a little bit beyond your reach. You can see them. You feel like you could touch them. But you can't get close enough. You can't get close enough because you and everyone else in all of creation you are not worthy. In the scales, you just don't quite measure up. How would you respond? With weeping, with mourning, with lament. John begins to, to tear his clothes, to weep and to mourn, but one of the elders stops him and says this in verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. It's the Lion of Judah who is worthy because he has conquered. He is worthy because of who he is as the Lion, and he's worthy because of what he's done. And we see in this verse and throughout this passage, we won't go into all of it because we just don't have the time, but we see Revelation again making use of the Old Testament all over the place. It's, it's the, the, the book in the New Testament with the most allusions and quotes of the Old and, and, and as, as he reads, as he describes this person, he says, first of all, that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Judah was the son of Jacob who called him a lion's cub. 
But now the Lion of Judah has, has become fully grown. He is royal, regal, magnificent. He is greatness itself. And he's not just the Lion of Judah. He's also, what he says, the, the Root of David. Now, this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 11, which talks about the, the, a, a shoot that comes from the root of Jesse, who was the father of David. David being the king of Israel in the Old Testament that was one of the, the greatest heroes of, of that country. But the root of David is, is kind of a weird way to say it because the root is supposed to be Jesse and his son David, and out of that will come a king, the promised Messiah from Isaiah 11, where there's, they're looking towards a ruler who will come, descended from David, to deliver Israel forever. But this isn't a shoot that comes out of the root of David or out of the root of Jesse. No, this is the root of David. As if David came out of him and not the other way around. And we see this again, this reference Jesus himself makes in Revelation 22. Revelation 22, verse 16 says, Jesus speaking here says, I am the root of and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. See, in, according to his humanity, yes, Jesus was a, a great-great-grandson of David. But according to his divinity, he is the eternal word through whom all things were created. He is both the root and the shoot of David. He is both David's God and his grandson. So, so John is hearing all of these things about who this person is, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. And as he hears these things, he's, he's expecting a conquering hero. He's conquered. And so he's picturing, you know, Steph Curry coming home after a victory, for a victory parade. He's picturing a, a presidential inauguration for someone who's won an election. He's picturing the Olympic athlete standing at the gold medal podium. That's what he is expecting to see. But when he turns and looks, what does he see? Verse 6 says that he saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He's expecting a lion, the king of the beasts. And instead he sees a lamb, innocent, small, weak, and not just weak, but standing as though it had been slain. The incredible thing about the difference between what John expects and what John sees is the counterintuitive nature of the gospel. Where we're looking for the king and we end up with the servants. We're looking for the conquering hero and we see a peasant executed by the government. We see Jesus, king, and crucified. John looks and, and sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And, and the, the weakness of that, it, it, it boggles the mind. He doesn't, he doesn't, fully grasp it in the moment. 
But I want to I focus in on, on the fact that it says that, that, he, that the lion conquered and that, that his conquering consisted of what he has done. He's worthy because of what he's done and what he's done is he's been slain. It's not what he's done, it's what's been done to him. See, see Christ's greatest achievement was not, it was not his creation of the world. It was not ascending to the right hand of God and ruling and reigning over all things, upholding the universe by the word of his power. It was not his feeding of the 5,000 or any of the other miracles recorded in the gospel accounts. No, what was Christ's greatest achievement? It was becoming obedient to the point of death. It was emptying himself, taking on the form of a servant, coming in extreme humility and dying as a sacrificial, atoning sacrifice for our sake, for our sin. The Lion of Judah is the Lamb who was slain, and he became the Lion, he became the King, he became worthy by dying. He became the Lion by becoming the Lamb. He says that this Lamb has seven horns. This weak, innocent little creature has seven horns, and, and, and these horns represent royal power and authority. He's perfect and full in his kingly authority. And it says that he has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Eyes, again, in the Old Testament, are, are a representation of wisdom and knowledge. He sees all things. He's, he's perfect in his knowledge and understanding. And the Spirit of God rests upon him. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The reality is that, that John is not worthy. That, that all the people in all of creation are not worthy. You and I are not worthy. But Jesus is. He's worthy because of who he is. Is. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the root and shoot of David. He's the all-seeing, all-knowing, perfectly divine one. And that royal king, because of what he's done, is worthy. Because he is the Lamb who is slain. Because he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is worthy. He is worthy of our worship. May all praise and glory be to his name. And that's exactly what happens. All praise, all glory, all worship goes to him as a result of him coming into the throne room. As we look at the end of chapter 5 in closing, I want to look both at, the, at the, the content of the praise as well as the scope of the praise in this passage. If, if you look at verses 9 and 10, the first song, there's three songs that are sung in chapter 5. The first song says this, Christ is praised because he is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. He's worthy to get the plague, the, the secret plan to fight the plague, the secret plan of God to, to redeem all things. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. 
and they shall reign on the earth. Christ is praised here because he was slain, because he hung on a cross and died for us. In verse 12, <coughs> he's praised saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Seven different things are ascribed to him. Seven different characteristics he is described as being worthy of receiving. Seven again being a number that means perfection, fullness. He is deserving of all praise. All the universe should praise him. And that's what we see in the last song. Where it says in verse 13, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Four things are ascribed to the, to the, God, on the, the God the Father on the throne and to the Lamb. Four things, four corners of the earth, all creation, all things in existence ought to praise God's name. But, but you see throughout this, this passage, the content of the praise points back to the cross, back to the cross, back to the cross. The cross is sufficient. It's sufficient grounds to give all praise to the Lord Jesus. Why? Because of the mystery of the cross. Because of how, what, a, what a perfect representation of God's love and, and what an unfathomable mystery it is. That the, the living God, the all-powerful creator, the sovereign one over all things, that he would allow himself to be lynched by his own creatures in order to save them is a, is a mystery that, that, that is unfathomable, that we will never get to the bottom of. And we could spend the rest of eternity pondering that mystery and never get to the end of it. But that's not all. Because the greatest thing about, about that mystery isn't that it happened, but it's why it happened. It's the reason. And the reason that God himself laid his life down, that God died. The reason that God let himself be killed is for his love for you. It's his love for me. At the heart of the universe is God's self-sacrificial love for his creatures, for you and I. And that reality, it defies our logic. It boggles the mind. It breaks your brain to, to try and get, get your mind around it. And yet there it is. The cross of Christ. The focal point of all history. The central theme of all the scriptures. That's the content of heaven's praise. What about the scope of it? There's a ripple effect. There's, there's, there's continuing circles of praise that emanate out, including more and more people as time goes on. In verse 8, it says that, that when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped. We said last week that the four living creatures are representative of all living creation and that the 24 elders in heaven are representative of all the church, Old and New Testament, all the people of God through all the angels. 
And as they praise, as they worship, they have, they have joyful singing, they have harps that are, that are really not classical instruments so much as dancing instruments meant to, to lead people to dance. And they have golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I've never worshipped in, in a church, I've never been a part of a church that used incense in worship, but that's the reason it exists in historic Christian worship, that, that it's a, a visible representation of our prayers going all the way up to heaven, all the way up to our God. The first circle of praise is the, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, but it doesn't stop there. In verse 11, it says this, that, that the, the, the creatures and the elders, to their voices were added the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. This verse means that we don't have to, to wring our hands and be really upset that, you know, people don't go to church anymore. It means we don't have to look at what we do in its simplicity and, and seeming weakness as you're sitting at home on your couch trying to, to, to pay attention, not, not fall asleep, not, to, not let your, your toddler distract you, whatever your situation is. That, that you don't have to look at this and think, oh, this is no big deal. This is just like, oh, it's, it's weak. It's, it's simple. It's frail. What this means is that the angels follow the praise of the church. Even if there are only three people in this room right now and a handful of people in your home or just you by yourself praising God right now, to our voices are added the voices of myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels. And then the circle gets even bigger than that. It goes on in, in verse 13 to say that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, we're praising God. We're praising the Lamb. What we do on a Sunday is simple, it's humble, it doesn't seem like much from an earthly perspective. But from the perspective of heaven, our praise creates a ripple effect that goes, it continues to echo on throughout the earth, throughout heaven, that even reaches to the depths of the sea, that even reaches to the depths of hell. Do you see what we're a part of when we gather to worship God each week? The, the fact that our voices reverberate throughout all of creation doesn't, isn't attributable to how great we are, what, how great our worship is, how beautiful our voices sound, how great our preaching is, or any of it. It all comes back to the greatness of the one that we worship. He is worthy of praise. It means that when we gather, when we do what we were created to do, which is to worship our God, to worship the Lord Jesus, our praise doesn't just stay here. It reverberates throughout creation and it will echo through all eternity. Be encouraged by that. That even as you're stuck at home during shelter in place, you have a role to play in God's cosmic plan to bring all praise and glory to the lion who is the lamb the one who is worthy of all praise, the 
the Lord Jesus Christ.